0: All you need is love. Love is a many splendid thing. Love lifts us up where we belong. And what the world needs now is love, sweet love. All you need is love. When Australia voted to approve same-sex marriage in 2017, the Prime Minister declared after the vote, love wins. When a friend of mine some years ago left his wife for another woman, he said it's because of love. And I recall a report in the news, again a few years ago, where a woman had killed her children. She said, because I love them. And the implication was she didn't want her estranged husband to have anything to do with them. You see, all you need is love. And it looks like the Apostle Paul gets that as well. That Apostle is often accused of being judgmental and harsh and condemnatory. He says, I pray that your love may abound more and more. All you need is love. He doesn't say whether it's love for God or love for neighbour. I think he means both in general. Love. That your love may abound more more. And more. He doesn't just say that your love may abound, or that your love may abound more, but rather that your love may abound more and more. That is, the idea is there is no limit to the love that he's praying for the Philippians. It will keep on abounding by the wave upon wave of an incoming tide, never stopping unlike the tide. Wave upon wave of growing and abounding love. To abound deeper, to abound wider, to abound higher. There's no direction here, there's no limit to it here at all. So a love that will endure more, a love that will embrace more. A love that will never stop abounding more and more. Because all you need is love. But is that really true? that all you need is love. You see, love actually is not all that we need. And Paul gets that, of course, because he prays that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. It's not an unrestrained or non-discerning or ignorant love, but rather love abounding more and more, that is the love is abounding more and more, but with knowledge and indeed all discernment—that is, the heart and the mind will be aligned here. It's not the heart ruling the head. Sorry, the heart and yes, heart and mind, heart and head. It's not the heart overruling the head or the head overruling the heart. There will be love with knowledge and all discernment because the whole being of the person, head and heart, we might say, is attuned in love with knowledge. And all discernment. Well, what is the knowledge that we need here? Paul's not, I think, referring to knowledge about God, information about God, but rather knowledge in a relationship with God, knowing God relationally seems to be what he has in mind here. So that your love will abound more and more within your relationship with God as you grow to know and therefore love God more and more and more and in knowing God more in a relationship with God more growing in your knowledge intimately of God more we will know and understand and discern what are God's loves and God's desires and God's priorities as well we'll begin to know more of God's character as we grow in our knowledge of God within a relationship with God And that's what the discernment, the all discernment, is pointing to here. Love is to be discerning because our love of God and therefore our love of others and other things and people and so on will be discerning, will be in line with the priorities, the values, the desires, the character of God himself. So, for example, that is why love, proper love, is patient. Paul says that, of course, in the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, love isn't puffed up and boastful. Love endures. And that's because of the character of God and the priorities and the desires of God. And as we grow in our knowledge of God in a relationship with him, we understand more and more of what true love is like, what proper love is, what discerning love is. A love that, in that example... Is patient and kind and not puffed up and boastful and we get then that the love of God is demonstrated in Scripture which we begin to know relationally and grow in our relationship with God is always a faithful love God sticks with his people he's not fickle he's not his love for us is never fleeting in the Bible story And so we discern then that true love lasts. True love is enduring. True love is faithful. And therefore true love is moral when it's within a relationship of marriage, a common metaphor in scripture. And it's loyal to friends, loyal to other people. It's honest and truthful because that's what God's love is. And we discern and grow in our knowledge of God's love, not informationally primarily, but in our relationship with God. And so love won't keep a record of wrongs, because God doesn't when he shows us mercy and forgiveness. It doesn't mean, though, that love turns a blind eye to wrongs and and washes over sin and evil and so on and says, oh, that doesn't really matter. Love doesn't ignore what is wrong and evil and sinful, but it's merciful and forgiving. It won't... Keep a record of wrongs. So, love will never be satisfied with turning a blind eye to sin, but will love in truth. And if love is discerning, if love is within knowing God and a relationship with God, then love of fellow Christians will have limits in a way. It will be discerning morally and theologically about what is right. It won't just pretend that we're all a happy family. It won't keep a record of wrongs, but it's a love that's discerning because God's love is discerning. It's out of love for us that God brings discipline and sometimes even judgment through Scripture. So Paul does not pray just for abounding love more and more. It's rather love with knowledge and all discernment. But that's not the end goal of his prayer. It's what he prays for the Philippians, and he tells them that he prays that for them. But there's a a sequence, a series of three purposes. So that this, so that that, and so that finally. And that's just in these couple of verses. You see, firstly, he says, I pray that's my prayer for you that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that, here's the purpose, why should our knowledge abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. So that you may approve what is excellent. The concept behind approve here is not just sort of to clap something, but rather to, through testing, You've proven that this is what is excellent. and what, It's what is excellent in God's eyes. As we grow in our knowledge of God in a relationship with him, we'll understand more and more and discern more and more what God views to be excellent, the best thing, if you like, what is best in his eyes. And therefore, it's not just that we understand what is best in God's eyes, it's that we love God what is best in God's eyes. It's a big difference, actually. It's very easy to know what God likes and wants and desires and thinks is excellent. But the real test here and why Paul is praying this prayer is that we may not just know these things and discern them, but that we may love them as God loves them too. So this is not indiscriminate love. It's a discerning love. A love that is gu- guided by, through our relationship with God to see what God loves and what God thinks is excellent. Now, this is right at the beginning of the letter to the Philippians, but right at the end of the letter, Paul comes back to this idea. He says in chapter 4, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything of excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now here, Paul is not saying just think about them. He's saying love them. But in order to love them more, we think about them more. So Paul comes back to this idea of excellence, pure, noble and Right. So often we fill our minds with things that are not noble and good and right. And then we struggle to love what is noble, good and right and excellent. So this abounding love with knowledge and all discernment is so that you may approve what is excellent, what is pure, holy, good, noble, what God thinks is the best. That so we not only understand that, but indeed we love it. So where do we fit with that? My guess is that most of us here have a fair idea of what God thinks is good and right and honourable. But do we love that? Do we love what is good? So I would guess that pretty much everyone here who's married would know that God thinks that it's good to be faithful in marriage. But do you love being faithful in your marriage? Or do you flirt with not being faithful? God wants us to love being faithful in marriage. We we know that being generous is good. So that we give to the poor, we give to Christian ministry, to Christian mission. There will be a variety of things that we give to. And we know that it's good to be generous. Scripture tells us that. God is a generous God. But do we love being generous? Or does our generosity come with some reluctance? Do we think perhaps, oh yes, I'm going to give my tithe my tenth, but I'm not giving one uh, ringgit more so that we fulfil the law with some begrudging reluctance? rather than loving generosity, for example. We know that it is good not to be corrupt. We know that God would not be corrupt or want us to be corrupt. There's enough in scripture that tells us all of that. But do we love not being corrupt? Do we love being absolutely transparent in our business dealings, our dealings with customers, clients, or managers, or whoever it might be. Do we love not being corrupt and being upright? An old hymn puts it this way, that I may love what thou dost love, and do what thou wouldst do, to love what God loves. That's what this prayer is about. Not merely doing the right thing, but rather to cultivate the love of doing the right thing. Coming out of a relationship with God, discerning God's priorities and loving more and more what God loves. And yet too often I think we flirt with the opposite. We cultivate secret desires, lusts, laziness, greed, whatever it might be because we're not loving the generosity, the faithfulness, and so on, that God wants us to love. What is excellent here has got the sense of what really matters as well. So that we, the big thing for God is the big thing for us as well. Paul uses that expression elsewhere in his letters. So to love with knowledge and love with all discernment gets God's priorities, gets the big thing, isn't Distracted or, or, or totally uh, fixated on small or trivial complaints and grumbles. It gets God's big picture. It gets what God wants. Paul later, for example, in Philippians chapter 3 will say, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So that's just one excellent thing of God. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. How excellent, how big, out a significant priority that is that God wants us to love in the knowledge of Christ. Last week you would have seen that uh, God who began a good work in you, Paul expects, will bring it to completion on the day of Christ from verse 6. A danger of reading that verse is say, yeah, God's begun a good work in me and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to enjoy my Malaysian food and put my feet up and keep cool, and God will finish this work in his time, and I'll sit back and relax and watch him do it. Let go and let God, as some people say. But that's actually not what Paul has in mind. God will finish the work he began in us, But we are to love with an abounding love more and more with growing discernment and knowledge. There's an onus on us, a responsibility for us to be like that and to keep testing and proving what is excellent, what is the best, what are God's priorities. But even that is not the ultimate goal of this prayer. Paul prays that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent so that... You will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So the, uh, the next step of the purpose, if you like. The word pure has got more of a sense of purified. That is, over time, we are to be more and more purified for the final day of Christ's return. Like metal that's taken out of the ground and heated at massive temperatures and the metal becomes pure metal. The, uh, the bad bits of it, whatever they're called, I forget or burned away. And so the idea is that our Christian life is being purified, ready to be pure on the final day of Christ, tested and proven. So what is most excellent? What really matters then is our purity, our purification, if you like, our blamelessness on the final day. What does that look like? Where I live in Melbourne, uh, there are some fruit trees and a couple of years ago uh, the grapefruit tree was astonishingly abundant and where I live I'm the only person who will eat grapefruit and, uh, and I calculated that probably in that season I, I, I might have eaten about a hundred and fifty grapefruit a little bit excessive probably none of them with sugar let me say I love grapefruit actually But I did get a bit carried away. But when I saw the tree, the tree was almost yellow. That is, I didn't have to sort of peel the branches back thinking, is there any grapefruit here? The fruit stood out. The fruit was obvious. The branches were bending under the weight of all the fruit. And on the final day, being pure and blameless means, as Paul says at the beginning of verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness, the sense of being like a heavily laden fruit tree, the fruit of righteousness will be evident and obvious in us. Christ is not going to have to sort of peer closely at us with a microscope and say, is there any righteousness here on this final day? It will stand out like the grapefruit on this yellow tree. More yellow than green leaves on that occasion. And on the final day, We will be filled, laden, heavily laden with the fruit of righteousness. Our abounding love with knowledge and discernment leads us to approve what is excellent. And that means to look forward to and long for and love to be purified, blameless and filled with righteousness on the day of Christ. How are we going to get there? By abounding love more and more with knowledge and all discernment. As our love grows for anyone and everyone in God, but restrained by knowledge of God and discernment, then ultimately we're we're on the track, if you like, to purification, blamelessness, and being filled with righteousness. But again, it's worth asking ourselves, are we on this track? Is your love for God motivating you for a deep love for and longing for, being pure, blameless, and filled with righteousness on the final day. Or is it more that you think, you know, here on earth it's, you know, it's fun to sort of think these thoughts, lust, greed, laziness, whatever it is. On the final day, I'll, I'll wait for that, that's coming. Is that you? Or is your abounding love stirring your heart all the time to love being pure, blameless, and filled with righteousness? It's hard, I think, because our community doesn't think that way. Western culture doesn't think that way, and I don't think Malaysian culture thinks that way. We we often applaud people who are impure and full of blame and lacking in righteousness, We like that sort of undercurrent of wrongdoing too often in our society, far too often. I suspect there's something of that in this culture as well. And the danger is we get caught up in that and think, oh, well, you know, just be like our world and finally I'll be pure and blameless on the final day. But no, that's Paul saying now. Abound in love more and more now for purity, blamelessness, and being filled with righteousness So are you longing for that final day of the Lord's return? I think Christians around the world have largely lost their longing and love for that final day, especially in the West where things are so comfortable and wealthy. Why do you want to look forward to something else? We've lost that cutting edge, I think. And what about your love for others? Your love for your fellow Christian, your love for your neighbour, your family, your friends who are not Christian? Is your love for them longing for and loving for them to be pure and blameless and filled with righteousness on the final day? Or is rather your love for them merely conditioned by the enjoyment, the fun that you might have now? See, true love, love with knowledge and all discernment, recognises that the most excellent thing in God's eyes is that people will stand pure, blameless, filled with righteousness on the final day of Christ. And therefore, if our love, abounding more and more for each other, is knowledgeable and full of discernment, attuned to God's values and priorities and character, then our love for each other will be a love that longs for their purity and blamelessness and being filled with righteousness. And we will do everything out of love to encourage that and motivate that, hoping that that's happening back to us as well. Is that you? I hope so. And is the fruit of righteousness gradually ripening in you? Are you in the progress of growing in righteousness for the final day? But even that final day, is that's not the ultimate purpose. What God's on about, big and important and a high priority though this is, that we stand pure and blameless and filled with righteousness on the final day, there's an ultimate purpose here. Paul prays that their love will abound more and more so that they may approve what is excellent. And that leads then to so that you'll be pure, blameless, filled with righteousness on the final day. And so that God will be glorified and praised. I ate some during last week. The king of fruit. Delicious. I haven't had some for years, actually. But notice, the fruit of righteousness here is Christ's, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. It's the king's fruit, righteousness. And it's not ours. Because God who's begun a good work in us, he, God, will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. And the righteousness with which we will be heavily laden is Christ's righteousness, not ours. And therefore the praise and glory will go to God. On my way to Malaysia a couple of weeks ago, I read a a just-released book by a Malaysian author, Fiction. I've been looking forward to this novel being published for two or three years since I learned about it being on the way. And so I grabbed it in the bookshop in Melbourne on the day that it was released, pleased and excited to hold it in my hands and then savoured it on the flight here. It's a great novel. I was really pleased to read it. But at the end of reading the novel, I didn't sort of pick up the novel and say, what a beautiful novel you are. What a wonderful job you've done. How much you I've enjoyed reading you on this flight to Malaysia. The air stewards would have looked at me oddly if I'd done that, I suspect. But what I did was send a message to the author of the novel, whom I happen to know. I don't write to authors generally. And I say, this is a great novel. Well done. You've authored a brilliant novel. Now, just because you might want to read Malaysian fiction, the book is The House of Doors by Tan Eng, his third novel, set in Penang in the 1920s. But I wrote to him and said, Fantastic. I've loved the novel. Well done. What a great work you've done. And on the final day, when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and there we will be together, I'm not going to say, Tim, what an amazing job you've done, growing in righteousness over these years. I'll praise God, because you'll be God's masterpiece. It's the fruit of righteousness of Christ that will be evident. And so it will be for all of us. It's not our work, achievement, our righteousness that will be evident on the final day. It's the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, the praise and the glory will go to the author, God. We will be his masterpieces. And so we'll say to each other, wow, what a change, what a work that God has done in you. You know how we sometimes see someone's kid and say, haven't you grown On the final day, we're not going to say, haven't you grown in righteousness? Yes, we will have, but it's not you that's grown. It's God who's grown the righteousness of Christ in you and in us. And that's why the praise belongs to God. As the end of this uh, section says in verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. On the final day, as we stand dripping with the fruit of Christ's righteousness, with abounding love, unrestrained and yet discerning, with our pores pouring forth purity, with our bodies beaming brightly with blamelessness, we will praise God because he's completed us with the righteousness of Christ. And we will be his masterpieces. Notice that in this prayer, Paul does not command the Philippians to abound in love. He doesn't say, you must abound in love more and more. He says, I pray that you may abound more and more because Paul recognises this is God's work. And yes, the, the, the Philippians are to exercise love and grow in knowledge and discernment and so on. But ultimately, it's God's work and that's what Paul prays for. And he tells them he's praying for them because he wants to encourage them. Is this your prayer for you, for your friends, family, and others? Are you praying for each other in this congregation that you abound more and more with love, knowledge, and discernment so that you'll be pure, blameless, and filled with righteousness on the final day? For Paul's prayer here should propel us to pray and propel us to love, to abound in love, to abound in love more and more molded by knowledge and discernment in a relationship with God so that in the end on the final day pure and perfect spotless we will be and God will be praised Amen